This is Young Lawyer Rising from the ABA Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. Listeners, welcome back. I'm your host, Montana Funk. Today we are joined by Karen Lapikas. Karen currently owns her own law firm, Lapikas Law, and she's also an adjunct professor at the University Miami School of Law, where she teaches federal tax practice and procedure. Prior to starting her own law firm, Karen was a former senior attorney at the IRS Office of Chief Counsel and a former Special Assistant United States Attorney at the Department of Justice. Lastly, as author of the ABA article, Five Good Reasons Not to Do Pro Bono Work, Karen joins us today to discuss the ins and outs of pro bono work. Let's get right into the show. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Montana. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'm really excited about this conversation. Pro bono work is something I've done a little bit of, but something I found super rewarding. So I think it's a really important topic to talk about. And I'm I'm excited to kind of just dive right into it. Let's do it. So I'm going to start off kind of simple, maybe kind of hard. What does pro bono work mean to you? Well, that's not simple because I, sometimes I can't figure it out myself. It's something I can't say no to. It's something that's extremely fulfilling to me and I, I'm drawn to it. It's, to me, it's like the most free space to, to practice law because I don't have to worry about billing. I can focus yeah. on the law and the facts and the clients and not, I, I don't care how long I've practiced. I've been in private practice, how many, 10 years now? Billing has never gotten easier to me. So being able to work for someone and not have to send a bill is extremely rewarding. No, I agree with that. I think billing is definitely a, an interesting thing that they don't teach you about in law school. And then you get out into the practice world and you're like, what is this? So, I mean, that's, that's a good point, right? Because pro bono work, you don't have to worry about that. You can just dive right into the work. And you're, you're working with, with clients who often for years have been navigating the system alone or gone to representatives who have steered them the wrong way. So when they finally get to someone who can, they believe can help them and see them through, it's like a breath of fresh air for them. And you can see them like even before you get any result for them, or even if you tell them you can't get a good result for them, it's like a weight lifted off their shoulders. So Karen, I kind of want to talk about that. You were saying, you know, individuals who've been navigating the system, you know, for a long time, it's kind of nice to have someone when they get your pro bono services to guide them through it. And what area, or I guess, you know, what demographic do you think is in most need of pro bono services? And why is that? To me, it's, I guess, obvious that it's low income because one, like they have the deck, everything stacked against them. They start off often going to preparers who stray them around the wrong way, promise them big returns, put things on their returns that they don't understand or perhaps shouldn't be there, who don't know what they're doing. And then when they do get audited by the IRS, they go back to the same people that created the problem and said, they say, don't worry about it. I'll fix it for you. And in fixing it for them, they create more problems that have to be unraveled. So it's lower income, single parents and Mm -hmm. lots of immigrants also. They've unfortunately, when you're new to this country, there's a lot of people that, you know, can take advantage of you because they don't understand the tax system. So do you think that there's a way that you can, you know, educate people on a broader level so that they're not being taken advantage of? Or do you think it's more a matter of just having these pro bono services available for these people so that they can have the help that's going to actually help them rather than kind of trick them or, you know, like you said, take advantage. Education, of course, is the 
great place to start. And I think the IRS has come a long way and is really focused on that itself. As an individual, I don't know what more we can do. I see our local like legal services organization doing a lot of outreach to low income. But at the end of the day, if somebody sees advertisements for, you know, big refunds and they're told that they're entitled to them, how do they pass that by? Any education, it's hard to overcome that kind of advertisement. So certainly the IRS's focus on, you know, bad tax return preparers is an important part as well. And I want to talk a little bit about your article too, obviously, which touches on pro bono services through and through. You know, the article is titled The Five Good Reasons to Not Do Pro Bono Work. So you have a title that says not to do pro bono work, but obviously you're extremely passionate about pro bono work. So for me, I guess I'm curious as to about why you would write an article about, you know, that seems like it's geared towards not doing pro bono work. Clickbait? <laughs> I thought it would be more interesting because how many times do we receive an article that says why you should do pro bono work? Like, we, yeah, I, honestly, I wouldn't open another one of those, but give me a reason <laughs> not to spend more of my time for free. And I'm going to open it up and realize, actually, maybe I need to be doing more of it. That's a, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do see times that there's cases that people shouldn't take. Like I, I was involved personally in pro bono cases where I thought, you know what, I don't think I'm best serving the client because this is not my area of law. Somebody else could be doing a better job. And I felt like if there's somebody else better, then I'm doing a disservice to the client. Certainly if there's no one else out there that can take the case, then then any lawyer is better than none. But my Mm -hmm. time is best served in doing tax representation. Well, part of your article does say that one of those reasons is not to expand the areas of law you're practicing. And, and, you know, you mentioned if that's something you want to do to maybe have a mentor to guide you through it. And I think that's super interesting because I think personally, I came from a civil firm where pro bono work was something, you know, we were able to do, which I'm very grateful for. And it was completely out of my realm of practice. So it was kind of a new area, uh, you know, that I had to learn, but I really enjoyed it. So, Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit for people who, you know, maybe have the opportunity that's out of their realm, they want to take it, but maybe it's not the best fit for them. How do they know when they should take a case versus when they probably shouldn't? If they haven't taken a case in an area of law before, I don't think they should take it unless they have somebody that's a committed mentor to them. Because whether someone's paying for your services or not, they're entitled to competent um, representation. Um, I, you know, the same obligations to those clients we have to those clients as to, as to paying clients. So I don't think we, we can forget that. Yeah, so anyways, in short, I don't think we should cut our teeth on new cases just because somebody's not paying us. So those are opportunities to reach out to somebody who is committed to be a mentor. I, I certainly would be, you know, and I've been in situations before where I was like, yeah, if you take this case, I will be there you know, by your side to, to walk you through it but you do the, do the legwork. You also mentioned burnout and how pro bono might not be an area that you want to, you know, engage in if you're feeling burnout. And can you elaborate on that a little bit for people who maybe they're burning out because they're constantly billing and working all these hours and pro bono seems like a good option, right? For the lack of billing, et cetera. But, you know, really what you're saying is don't take on a pro bono case if you're feeling like you're going to burn out. Yeah, there is a time and place for everything. I think there's a season for everything. And if you're in the season of your career where you're committed to billing X number of hours that may already 
already seem out of reach, then I do not think this is the time to take on a case that's going to feel like a burden. Pro bono should feel good. It should you know, enliven you and, and make you love the practice of law again. And if it's going to, if you can't really put your heart into a case, no, I don't think it's the time. But it may be the time to evaluate whether you're too committed in other areas. Because certainly after a few years, if you still cannot do anything, you know, commit to any hours towards pro bono, something is, in my opinion, wrong. Do you think that it's important for everyone in their practice to do pro bono? And why would you, why do you think that? I, I know that's what the industry tells us. That's what law school tells us. Certainly that's what our code of ethics and our oath tells us, that everybody should be doing it. But maybe everyone's not cut out for it. And there is an avenue to say, okay, maybe you're the person that should be donating more money. I, I donate in addition to giving time, but certainly if I couldn't give so much time, I should be giving more money. So in those times where your life does not allow you to really give yourself to a pro bono case, donate to you know pro bono services and to people that can. I think that's a good point too, is that, you know, it, it doesn't mean that everybody is cut out for it or that everyone has the time for it, but there are other ways to contribute and to help with pro bono services besides actually just taking on a case. And I think like you said, donating, and is there any way else that you can find that people can help these pro bono services? You know, maybe they don't have enough money or they're starting out in their career and, you know, they're two years in and they don't have the time or the money, but how else can people get involved? In fact, that's that's how I got involved in a lot of pro bono service and, you know, became a big sister through Big Brothers, Big Sisters at the beginning of my career because I wasn't in a position to give money. But I had time. I was single and didn't have kids. Um, I did trainings for le local legal services on tax matters. I was available, you know, it was just a call away if they had a question about a, a tax case that they had. Even if I couldn't take on a full case, I could, you know, counsel them along the way. So, you know, trainings, like you said, education to the community is important. So even if you can't take a case, there's so many things you can do. And reaching out to your local pro bono legal services organization is the best way to start. All right, listeners, we are going to be right back after this quick message. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Get civil and you get a fast, custom-built website that looks great, brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads, and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit 
with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what Civil can do for your website. GetCivil.com. That's G-E-T-C-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. All rise with Civil. Listeners, welcome back. Karen, before the break, you know, we were just continuing to talk about how, you know, education's important, you know, why people get involved in pro bono, how else people can help with pro bono services if it's not taking on a case or donating to a cause and kind of, you know, segueing out of that into something that I think is similar is misconceptions that people may have about pro bono services and what you think are the biggest misconceptions that individuals might have. I think I pointed this out in my article. One of the biggest misconceptions about pro bono is that you're going to take on and and win all the cases. Like, no, unfortunately, the majority are probably, for lack of a better word, losing cases. But the win comes in being able to explain the law to somebody who's been navigating the system on their own, who doesn't understand it, and also explain their options out you know, once their case is closed now, how do you really deal with the problem? How do you prevent the problem in the future? So you become more of a a counselor at that point. So you're not going to take a pro bono case, you know, assume you're going to rack up a bunch of wins. Why do you think pro bono cases are typically losing cases? I think, unfortunately, experience. The IRS is, you know, it's many complaints as we can legitimately have against them. I do believe tries to get to the right answer. So once you get a case that's you know, nearing the tax court or in tax court, often the IRS has had an opportunity to review it. I mean, even the fact that a notice of deficiency was issued, there's something off um, that has flagged that return already. Although we've seen post COVID that there's a lot of cases in tax court that should not be there because people have not had an opportunity to present their documents to the IRS. The IRS simply wasn't responding. So I've seen more cases in tax court that shouldn't be there and should have easily been resolved. It's just unfortunately through experience that I see a lot of cases that that shouldn't be there. IRS does a very good job at flagging returns that may have issues on them. And that's what gets us into tax court. No, that makes sense. And I mean, I don't think necessarily that there's is a straight answer, right? There's a lot of different reasons why a case, you know, might be a losing case, unfortunately, from the beginning in pro bono work. But like you said, it's giving these clients kind of a chance at understanding something that maybe they've been dealing with for a really long time that might be as simple as, oh, this actually doesn't need to be in this court or, you know, it's actually a really simple resolution. And that's something that you can help with as a pro bono attorney. So I think that's really important. I just thought of it. it a specific situation I dealt with not long ago that the pro bono client just felt like it was incredibly unfair that they couldn't claim their child on return. So he's like, so I, does this mean I did all this, you know, provided all this support for my child for nothing, even though the law doesn't support my claiming them as a dependent? I was like, man, that is a, that is a tough question and I can't answer it. And I'm sorry you feel that way, that because the law says you can't claim that it is a dependent, that you've done all this support for your child for nothing, that it wasn't worth it. But this is not, the court is not opining, or the law is not opining on how good of a father you are. It's merely saying whether you're entitled to claim them on your return. So 
you know, that's someone that really wanted to go to court and tell their story. And I had to, you know, kind of talk them off the ledge. It's like, certainly you can have your day in court, but this is how I think it's going to go. This is the way the law says it's going to go. And I know it seems incredibly unfair, but until the law changes, that's the world we have to live in. And kind of going on personal experience and wins and losses, something that you state in your article is that pro bono cases, you know, aren't always won in court, but the wins actually occur through these connections with your clients, you know, the hope that you're helping restore the knowledge. And obviously with that story, it sounds like that's an example of that. And do you have any, you know, specific case that sticks out to you or example that you recall where you really, you know, may not have won in court necessarily, but it was still a win based on this connection that you developed? It's a very recent one that I dealt with. Until I got involved, that client had never actually reviewed the original return, the amended return that was filed on their behalf. And so then they couldn't understand why the IRS didn't want to process amended returns. So when I sat down with them and went through line by line on their return, they were appalled at what they saw on their return. And they said, that's not, that's not true. I didn't do this and this, and I didn't have this expense. I said, okay, so here's what the right result should be. You know, we shouldn't fight this in court, but let's see. Let's see if we can work out an offer and compromise. Let's see if we can do an offer and, you know, an, an installment agreement. You accept this, but let's let's get to the resolution that, that you can live with. So at that point, they, they weren't being taken advantage of, you know, by the IRS. They realized it was their former two tax return preparers that had led them astray. So yeah, that was not a win in court, but the client was still extremely, you know, thankful to understand finally what was happening. Yeah, it's not just about having like the win on paper or, you know, the win, like you said, in court, but just an understanding, more knowledge, just kind of better explanation and, you know, understanding why something is the way it is, is a win to a lot of these people, it sounds like. And I also explain like, Part of the win is not going to trial because once you go to trial, this becomes part of the public record. And every time, tell us to every client, every time you have an opinion written, they will Google, someone can Google your name and that opinion will pop up. Do you want that in the future? It's a risk you have to take, unfortunately. Okay, I have one one last, I think, easy question. (laughs) But (laughs) any final takeaways that you have from this or anything that you want to make sure our listeners know about pro bono services, any messages you want to make sure are conveyed through this podcast, you know, as your kind of last question, anything that you just want to make sure the listeners take away from this today? That there is so much need for more pro bono work and in any way you can help, whether you don't necessarily have to take a case, just start by reaching out to, you know, your local pro bono organization, legal services, or even someone like me that you know that does pro bono work and say, how, where can I be of service? Maybe you're good at teaching. Then yes, there are so many opportunities to speak and to teach and to even, you know, maybe you're older and retired and don't want to take a case, but you would be a perfect mentor to a younger attorney who wants to take on a new case, a new area of law. Um, Just reach out and get your name on a list to start getting involved and if, and if you can't, then pull out your checkbook. <laughs> Every little bit counts. No, that's, that's a great message. And you're right that there's always, I mean, hopefully people can find the avenue that's right for them and really just put themselves out there to help in any way that they can. So Karen, can you tell our listeners before you go where they can find you? I have a practice at Lapicus Law. You can find it at lapicuslaw.com, L-A-P-E-K-A-S law.com. Otherwise just Google me. I'm, I'm active on LinkedIn and love connecting with people there. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today. I really do appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Montana. Thanks. Listeners, we are going to take a quick break and then we will be back with Julie for our pop law segment. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. A website from Civil fills your new client pipeline. Prospects find you through powerful SEO, and smart intake forms make it easy to integrate with Clio, Smokeball, Lawmatics, and MyCase. Never lose another lead. Get your Civil Bundle, website, SEO, content marketing, and Google Business Profile Management free for 60 days from the legal industry's best end-to-end lead generation platform. Book your demo at getcivil.com. That's getcivill.com. Julie, what do you have for us today? Hi, Montana, and hi, everyone. This is Pop Law, where pop culture meets the law, and I'm your host, Julie Marrow. And today, Montana, we are talking about our beloved Prince. I mean, the artist, singer, Prince, in case we, not the royal family, (laughs) you know, rest in peace to him. So one of his photos is in the Supreme Court, and everybody, if you go to the grocery store and see magazines. You've probably seen the picture because it was on, I think, Time and Vanity Fair, at least, after he died. So Lynn Goldsmith is a famous rock star photographer. She's taken photos that have been on hundreds of album covers. And she took this photo of Prince in 1981. It's a sort of... I don't know how to explain it. It's just the most famous photo of him, basically. You've definitely seen it somewhere. And it's sort of a headshot. He's got like a really cool angle with the shadow and um, his hair is kind of in his face. So you have Andy Warhol and he pays Goldsmith way back in the day for the rights to the to the use the photo for like $400. And, or Vanity Fair, I think, paid Goldsmith. And... Warhol made these silk silk screens of the photo of Prince. So now we've got 16 or 20 of these, I think it was 16, silk screens of these photos. This is all technical because it's copyright, okay. which is a little frustrating. But basically, fast forward, <laughs> Prince dies. Vanity Fair wants to buy the, the silk screens from the Warhol Foundation to use in a, their tribute in their magazine for, for Prince. Well... Go back and Goldsmith is now upset because Goldsmith originally took the photo that has been altered. They changed the colors and Warhol made, you know, money off of that. So the question before the Supreme Court is if there was, if the images were really transformative of changing, um, you know, you pretty much put a color like over a black and white photo is what these look like. So the big one in controversy is the orange photo. And so it's like, you know, if you took a black and white picture and just sort of brushed over it with like some orange spray paint and then cleared it up. I don't know. But 
the yeah. justices were being hysterical during the oral arguments, which was really why this made the news. We'll have to see, I guess, that what uh, they say about the actual copyright issue. But Thomas, Justice Thomas and Alito, and I think one of the other ones too I read, were just very, and I think they were excited. You know, this is something kind of not... I mean, it is serious, but it's Prince and it's pop culture. And um, that's what basically the article I read was about, was how the justices just like really lightened them up a little bit. <laughs> I mean, what do you think about this? I'm, I'm curious to see what your opinion is. I don't know. I, th- I think I side with Goldsmith that she took the photo if all you did was change yeah, the, I agree. the color over it. Yeah, Justice Alito, um, the question they asked was, you know, if someone were to take the Mona Lisa now and paint the same painting, but uh, change the color of her dress or the color of her hair. And someone pointed out, you know, that's kind of from one, it's like the, in the eyes of the beholder. Like if, if you know what Mona Lisa is and, and, you know, you're really into art history or that sort of thing that you're going to see that as a, a much bigger issue than someone who doesn't have any appreciation for art. And I also think it probably depends on the person too. I mean, if just like a random person in their basement, no offense that no one knows is is painting the Mona Lisa. I don't know that there's a big issue, but when you have someone like Andy Warhol doing it, it's a little bit different at that scale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it too. You have the, the reputation backing that you can actually make some, some real money off of your altered images. So we'll see. Yeah. Interesting. I'm interested to see how it turns out. Yeah, it'll be decided at the end of the term and we'll have to we'll let you guys know on, on a future episode. But thank you for listening. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm your host, Julie Marrow, and this is Pop Law. Well, listeners, that's our show. I want to thank Karen for joining us today to talk about a very important topic. And thank you for tuning in. As always, if you like what you heard today, please recommend our show to a friend. We can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Montana Funk, and you've been listening to Young Lawyer Rising, brought to you by the ABA Young Lawyers Division and the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.